We are in Matthew chapter 5, continuing with Sermon on the Mount, the path of Jesus part 2. We'll be in verse 27. If you don't have a Bible, you can take one at the end of your row. Hear God's Word. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. Let's pray. All right, God, so we got this passage. This is something you want us to look at and you want us to talk about. Um, and so here we are. And I pray that you would then speak to us, make it clear to us. I pray that I would get out of the way with my own intentions and thoughts, and that you would, through your spirit, speak through me, that we'd walk away from here this morning uh, hearing from you. There's a lot of people this morning that need to hear this, what it is that you have to say, Jesus. And in my uh, limitedness, uh, being who I am, growing up where I grew up, being a 21st century American, there's going to just be some limitations here. Um, and so, I don't personally, I don't want to have like this hubris and that I'll be able to expound on everything that you're trying to say, but we just pray that we would get enough this morning, enough that would compel us and convict us and convince us um, to want to walk out of here and actually live differently. So we, we give ourselves to you this morning, pray that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I remember the first time I looked at porn, probably not the first thing you're expecting to hear from a, a sermon this morning, right? Let's just go ahead and get this out of the way. Um, the first time I ever looked at porn, um, I came, I was, I used to hang out with this guy named Chris Jones. Uh, Chris and I played t-ball together um, and Little League together. Uh, we really enjoyed trading baseball cards. He always had better baseball cards than me. Um, I never could really work a good deal with him. Um, he also had all the uh, Nintendo games that I wish I had. Uh, so we would like make sure that we like had a lot of food um, and uh, you know, play baseball cards. We played through a season of Tecmo Bowl. Any Tecmo Bowl fans in here? Right? So you know that takes like three hours. So we would do that and try to win championships um, and then celebrate. But then it would get late at night. And I remember um, he had cable, and I had none of that. I'm, I grew up out in, like, the country in Mississippi, right? So, like, we had channels 3, 9, and 27. Are, are you with me on that, right? So, a couple of you maybe had that. We had three channels, and so, uh, but he had cable. And I remember uh, we were flipping through the channels, and he came to what I, what uh, came to be known as Skinamax. Anybody know about Skinamax, all right? This was a 90s thing. It's the, it's the cable show Cinemax, but late at night on Cinemax, there would, uh, it would turn to Skinamax. And I remember uh, on a fuzzy screen seeing people having sex. And um, I don't really, at the time, I didn't know what was happening. I look back now, I know exactly what was happening. But something in me looked at that and uh, was very scared, like fire, don't touch. But then I was like strangely warmed by it. 
and I wanted to get I wanted to get closer to it, and it was just this kind of weird, conflicting thing. I didn't know that it was dopamines releasing in my mind. I didn't know that I was finding release and relief from all the stress of life. I didn't know that. I just knew that something in front of me was don't do it, don't look at it, turn away, but then, like, I just, I just got to have more. And so, that started something. It, it awoke in something in me that um, I didn't know how to deal with. Um, I, uh, I grew up as an only child to, uh, with my mom, uh, who was a single parent. And we grew up, uh, I grew up in a very fundamental uh, Christian home uh, that was black and white, and if you asked a question and tried to bring any kind of point to the cracks, uh, people just kind of lose their minds and, and say, you know, just have faith and let's not talk about that. So, I didn't grow up in an atmosphere that was conducive and inviting to, to asking questions. And so, my sex education from there became baseball players. That's not a good thing, all right? So, um, young 13, 14, 15-year-olds who have all kind of crazy sexual energy and, and not knowing how to articulate it, that's where I learned the birds and the bees. Uh, and so, what I learned is that the way you then, the next thing you do after you look at porn is now you masturbate. Let's go and get that word out of the way. We're going to say it a lot and just need you to get comfortable with it, which... Take that back. You don't have to get comfortable with it, but you have to accept it. All right, so, um, so then that was the way then you, I would deal with that. It's like, okay, then I'll, I'll just masturbate. Like, that's, that's what you guys are, are saying to do, and, and that's what I'll do. And it took me to another level. And I remember feeling so much guilt and shame over it because what I would hear on Sundays is, like, if you lust, you're going to go to hell. Like, that's what I was hearing, whether or not that's what they were trying to say, but like at first glance at a passage like this, that's kind of how you walk away. It's like, like no other passage seems to be this strenuous and this like extreme, right? Like we're just talking about like lusting, you know, adultery, and you're going to hell. Okay, like it's that's so in my limited understanding as a 10, 11, 12 year old, like that's how I was trying to like wrap my mind around this world. And I remember going to my youth pastor and I said to him, Hey, so I have a friend and he like masturbates. Uh, what should I tell him? And he looked at me and uh, he said, uh, You tell him not to do that anymore right? Or like, you know, he'll lose his salvation. And I just looked at him and I was like, he, my eyes got big, you know what I mean? And I was just like stumbling back. And then finally it hit the adult that was talking to me that may not have been like the best thing to say there, right? Like I, I maybe shouldn't have led with something that strong with this like 13-year-old that you might be going to hell if you're lusting and, and masturbating. So what that told me there was a, it, it created a narrative, that I'm going to have to, like, have a bifurcated life. Like, there's going to be a dichotomy created between this kind of outside me and this inside me. And this inside me just kept going further and further away, but the outside me kept getting more pristine and more shiny and making the seemingly better decisions. It's the difference between the, the 1 p.m. and the 1 a.m. And so this was my struggle. This is my journey. And this is something that eventually turned into addiction, something that turned into what was controlling my life, something that was destroying my marriage. I mean, this was just the thing that just kind of stuck with me. And now as I stand up here and talk to you, 
I think about how the church, when it tries to deal with simply pornography and masturbation, and it gives the church these tools of how not to do those things, it's like giving you a knife when you're going to a gunfight, right? Like it's like saying, okay, well, here's how you're equipped to live. Now go out there and go to battle. And you're like, wait a second, this isn't working. Now, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands on this, but like there's a lot of raise of hands on this. If I were to say, how many of you can like relate to that? That you feel like you've been given these like tools that really don't work. These approaches that really don't make sense. And the church has been fostering people who are impotent and inept to actually deal with something as cunning and baffling and stifling and destroying as lust. Because that's what Jesus is talking about here. And so this morning, that's what I want us to dive into. And I'll be honest with you, I have a lot of fear around it. Like, usually this is like my wheelhouse. Like, I'm like, yeah, let's talk about lust. But like, I was just like really anxious this morning. And like, I sent out a text to the elders going, I don't know how this is going to go, but you can pray for me. Uh, And so, I just want you to know, like, this is going to be messy. Like, no pun intended. Like, this is just going to be difficult. Like, and you may not walk away with like this amazing resolve, but I do hope we do walk away with more clarity. Because Jesus is after something more than just you not looking at something or you not touching yourself. He's after more. And this is what he's going to try to unpack for us. So let's, let's just dive right in. Let's first look at what Jesus is asking for, and then we're going to look at like what it means to live this out. So first, what is Jesus asking for? Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. All right, how many of you know where this comes from? Anybody? Ten Commandments. Some of you guys, okay, Ten Commandments. Here we go. We're going now. You guys are like, I'm afraid to say anything. (laughs) So this is from the Ten Commandments, all right? So if you go to the Old Testament, to Exodus, that when when Israel is coming in contact with, with God, he's giving them these ways to live. Now, we've talked about this. The commandments were these boundaries, these healthy ways to interact with the world around them. This is what Yahweh was trying to give his people. He wasn't just simply saying, you better not do this or I'm going to get you. He's actually saying, if you want to interact with me and if you want us to kind of go forward together and see change in this world, we're going to have to have some boundaries. So this commandment, it's the seventh commandment that you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus is referencing this. Now, here's what's important to understand. Most every ancient culture recognized that adultery wasn't a good thing. Like they all, this wasn't like just some kind of new revelation, and yet it was still profound. I got something I want to show you here. This is from a a historian as they're walking through even ancient Greece and their culture when it came to um, adultery and women and men. It says, marriage in ancient Greece was an important public event concluded in the presence of witnesses. The bride's guardian would recite, I give you this woman for the plowing of legitimate children. Okay, let's just stop there. Aren't we thankful that's no longer said? (laughs) And if it was said, like, you'd be like, this ain't going to work, all right? So, first off, this was like a saying that would be spoken over a woman going into marriage. So let's just get this out of the way. How dehumanizing is that just to simply say, I give you this woman for plowing. 
all right? And they're trying to save for procreation, but come on, there's better words than using plowing. Are you with me? Okay. So, that was the purpose of marriage. Her dowry consisted of liquid property or income-producing lamb that was inheritable by her children. Now, a dowry was something that a father gave to the husband from the daughter, that whenever a child was born into a family, they had an immediate claim to the estate. And they didn't have banks, right, at that time. Um, they didn't have federal credit unions to make sure that they could store up their money on a rainy day and get to. Their money was their land. Their money was their home. Their money was their cattle. So whatever you had, that's how much money you had. So whenever a woman got married, the father then would have to liquidate property and then give it to the husband. But it was now not simply just the wives, it was now the husbands, because it's a patriarchal culture. So the woman, I mean, the man actually had the say-so of the woman's inheritance. And then one day handed over to the children. Now, you can kind of fill in the gaps there and see all kinds of things, shady things that could happen, right? All kind of ways that there's maybe manipulation used, like a lot of men didn't want to get divorced because why? They would lose money. They would lose, like, all this property, all this stuff. So, he goes on to say, her husband was obligated to protect the dowry and return it to her family in event of a divorce. So, therefore, you're already seeing, like, therefore, a husband wouldn't really want to get a divorce. Now, next week, we'll talk about divorce and oaths because it still happened. And there's loopholes that actually Jewish people, the Israelites, were looking for in this whole matter, which Jesus will address. But here what we're seeing is there's actually an inherent injustice for women growing up and living in ancient Eastern culture. He goes on to say, citizen men were allowed to have sexual relations with slaves, foreign concubines, female prostitutes, and willing pre-adult citizen males. Um, young men were looked at as the epitome of beauty and perfection before the age of 18, all right? So, uh, this was something that every, um, every man growing up and living in ancient culture felt like that they had a right to. Women, young boys, it doesn't matter. Citizen women were not afforded the same freedom, and adultery was severely punished for the woman. Adultery was not severely punished for the man, but for the woman. Now, let's just pause and just think about the absurdity of all this. Like, how crazy is that? How insane is it that a woman had those few rights in ancient Near Eastern culture and in Greece? It's absurd. And all the ways that they would be manipulated, degraded, dehumanized, because they actually, if they divorce, okay, so here's the thing. A Greek male, a husband, could go sleep with whoever he wanted to with no consequences, but if the woman wanted to get out of that abusive relationship, they could actually die. That's insane. And so, this was the culture at hand, and these were the injustices that women had to deal with. It goes crazier, because then Roman culture adapted much of Greek culture, which Greek culture adapted most of ancient Near Eastern culture. So, listen what happens as it goes down the line. Roman culture further 
refine sexual ideologies by representing sexual practices in terms of active and passive sexual partners. The penetrators was the active dominant partner where the penetrate was the passive submissive one. Roman men, listen to this, Roman men became known as impenetrable penetrators. It got to the point where literally Roman men could penetrate sexually whoever they wanted to and then build themselves up in a way where they were impenetrable. What a sick abuse of power. And yet it still happens. In the last two weeks, we know it's definitely been happening. We know in Hollywood, the cracks are getting wider and wider. Whether from famous producers, actors coming out and blasting the famous producer, and then people stepping up and finally using social media as a way of not just blasting your thoughts, but actually going, no, you did this to me. This is unjust. You can't call the kettle black. You can't do that. And so this is what's happening. And it doesn't stop there. It even goes to politicians. Throw a rock, you'll hit somebody. So this is the culture still at hand. It's abusive. It's unjust. It's not right. Now, what was interesting about the law that was coming out from the Torah 3,500 years ago was that by saying you should not commit adultery, that went for men and women. Like the scales were finally evening out. See, this is what's so wild about the Torah when you read it within the context of ancient Near Eastern culture. It actually was finally shifting and saying men and women are equal. And so you can't get away with stuff, men, just like a woman can't get away with something. Both of you have to be willing to live in this relationship together and be faithful to one another. And if you don't, there are consequences. It's amazing how, like, when Yahweh shows up, he starts, like, crushing all the ideologies of that time. Because from the top down, even though it was said that adultery was wrong, you still had pharaohs and emperors and others abusing their rights sexually of other people, becoming impenetrable penetrators. And yet we find in Isaiah 54 that God says, for your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. See, the main metaphor and imagery that God goes to with his people is that of marriage. Because he wants to show them something. I'm in this with you as well. Like, I won't be unfaithful to you. You don't be unfaithful to me. I'll practice fidelity to you. You practice fidelity to me. No other religion could offer that. No other religion could offer like a God saying, I'm going to be faithful to you in a marriage, and we're going to figure this thing out together. Because the best, like, imagery they had at that time would be marriage. Two people saying, we're going to try to work this out and figure this out. I'm not going to run away. I'm not going to check out. Because what that was offering humanity was dignity. See, that's what the law is trying to provide is dignity. Where you actually as a human being can, like, be human and not dehumanized. But every other system within ancient Eastern culture was failing it couldn't provide those things. And so those with power, the impenetrable penetrators from the top down, 
were the ones who were abusing the power. And so therefore, everybody else is looking around going, well, we know they're doing it. We know Pharaoh's getting some on the side. Like, we know he's not that faithful. He's passed a new law here. I'm the son of God, and I can sleep whenever I need to to make sure I get a male child. Everybody knows what's happening intuitively, but because it was a silenced, abusive culture, you really couldn't speak out or you'd die. And the least among were females, women, who had to then enter into and stay in these abusive relationships. See, God looked at marriage as the best metaphor to communicate fidelity, and the law was given to help bring a humanity again. But here's the thing. An unsurrendered heart will always lead to an uninspiring life. Because what the law shows is that you just can't do enough action. You eventually have to really get to the heart of the matter. And that's what Jesus then, when he steps in at verse 28, is trying to say. Let's read verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So this, would be, this is wild. This is not a common saying at this time in history. It would be common to say don't have adultery. Jesus takes it further as he always does, and he's going through something more. He goes, even in your heart, if you lust, you committed adultery. And we're all like, well, game over, I guess, right? Like, what do we do with that? Here's what's interesting. So, this word lust is this word epithemio. Everybody say epithemio. Oh, my God, you guys are like trying to get away from this sermon so bad. All right, epithemio. Okay, thank you. So, here's the idea with epithemio. It's actually two words that are brought together to communicate a bigger idea. It's the word themio, which is desire. It's this it's this kind of participle put on the front of it, epi, to make it like, that's where we get our epic word from, epic. And so, it's trying to communicate something that's more than just desire. It's more than simply saying, I want this. Instead, he's trying to say, I want this so badly, I'm going to set my heart upon it and get it at all cost. That's what epithemio is trying to say. Epithemio is not to say, I want it. It's to like set your heart on it and go, I've got to have this at all costs. Now, epithemio in the Greek in the New Testament can be used both ways. It can be used for a positive or a negative. So, for example, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul's talking, and here's what he says in verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. So, the flesh is against the spirit with this epithemio that is trying to drive you from the heart to say, get this at all costs with your flesh. And the spirit is against the flesh trying to get inside of you going, get this at all costs. So, that's why when you're feeling confused, right, like there's actually something happening there. Like it, it's not necessarily like a tug of war, but it is the insides of you going, man, like this, this looks so good. I think I really want this so badly. And you have this choice to set your heart to it to get it at all costs. Now, lust, let me be clear, a, a person who's a mentor and, and, and a ceiling in my life, they said, listen, first looks on God, second looks on you. All right? So, first looks on God, second looks on you. Now, what I'm trying to say is like some things, and sometimes you're going and you're like, oh man, that looks good. All right? So, 
you're like, that's dehumanizing, okay? And um, now the second look's on you. The question is, do you want to stay there? And Jesus understands that if you stay there, something more is going to happen. Like you look at someone who's attractive to you. You look at a situation even that's desirable to you, and you can easily want to like set your heart towards it. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you're not careful, something worse will happen to you. Because Jesus is not just after the actions of you not committing adultery. See, listen, there are hundreds and hundreds of marriages in this world, thousands, that stay together. But they are as lonely and distant as anyone could ever imagine. And you know it when you get around them. Because a lot of you grew up in that kind of home. You had parents that kept talking about the Bible and Jesus and going to church and being faithful, and gosh, there was like nothing there. And so what we try to say is, well, they lost their spark. They lost the desire for one another in that sense. Yeah, but at the same time, there was an understanding that was false, that if you simply just don't like have sex with a person other than your spouse, you'll be okay. As long as you don't do outward actions, you'll be fine. And Jesus is sinking his teeth into this and saying, nope, not enough. If you do that, you'll always end up in even a worse situation. James goes on to say in James 4.2, your desire, your epithemio, and you do not have, so you murder. What? Like, that's insane. One of those verses, again, that goes from zero to 90 in no time. You desire, you just desire, and now you're like, now I'm going to kill the person. Now, there's actually a, a bill to this that James talks about in chapter 1, verse 14. Let me give this to you. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, this epithemio inside. Then the desire, when it has, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, he just gave the snapshot in chapter 4, verse 2, but here he lays it out. You see, if you don't actually deal with this desire, this epithemio, this lust, it actually will lead to sin. It will lead to a dehumanization of yourself, but then when it goes outside of yourself and you start dehumanizing another person, that's when you start breaking down the world around you. And that's what sin is. Sin is the unweeding of shalom. Sin is the tearing apart of what God has put together. And this is what every human is capable of. We are capable of stripping dignity from others around us. Now, let me, let me say this very clearly, because this isn't just for guys. This is for gals as well. Every time you look upon another person with lustful intent, you are stripping away their dignity. You are dehumanizing them. You are objectifying them, and you are setting yourself up for death. Here's the crazy thing. You could go on doing it and keep just kind of walking with Jesus, and everybody thinks it's fine, but you are as hollow and empty like a piece of candy. It tastes good at first, and everybody knows to stay away from it. And so you wonder why, like, you can't grow. You wonder why, like, there's, like, you can't go farther with Jesus because there's such a hollowness to you. You're unwilling to actually admit the fact that you keep dehumanizing others around you. You keep stripping away from them. You keep objectifying them. And it eventually leads to what we've seen in Hollywood or with politicians or with preachers. 
Because it hits home, doesn't it? It's not just out there, it's here. It's very easy for this to happen, the dehumanization of other people. That if you don't check it, if you don't talk about it, you will get to a place of a point of wreckage in your life. See, when you set your heart to consume, to lust after others, another person rather than to love them, you will dehumanize your, uh, them and yourself. Now, this leads to a couple of other verses. Let's look at verse 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. If you give lust a chance to hang around, that's what he's saying, you will find yourself living outside of humanity. Now, and dehumanizing yourself. Now, let's, there's a few things here we just need to be able to break down because this has been such an abused passage. Um, early church fathers would talk about this passage and take it so literal that people would, like, cut off their penis. Like, that's just what would happen. Like, they would, they would castrate themselves, right? They would totally emasculate themselves and thinking, that'll deal with the problem then. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, we can look back on that and go, there's probably a better option than that, right? Yes, Robin, there are better options than that. Okay, good. <laughs> because, like, you can do that all you want, but at the end of the day, like, you still have your heart and what you're setting it upon. Now, that's not to say cutting things off in life isn't important, okay? So, for example, when I finally started to deal with lust in my life and pornography and all those kind of things, because the pornography and the masturbation were simply an outworking of the lust. So, I had to start dealing with the compulsion and dealing with the obsession, right? You know what I mean when I say that? The compulsive acts, like you got to deal with that, but then you got to deal with all the obsessions, all the things you put into your life that make you want to be compulsive and act. So I had to start doing like major inventory of all the things that would be lustful to me. Now, it's easy to get rid of porn. That's an easy one. Okay, just get rid of porn. But then you're like have all these other little ways that you can check out. And one of the big ways for me that I had to cut off and get away from was the TV show Friends. Anybody like Friends? Boy, I really enjoyed Friends when I used to go to watch it, all right? Here's the story of Friends. If you don't know, if you want a child of the 90s, it was six people living in New York. Um, somehow they made enough money to not have to work that much. Um, they hung out at a coffee shop regularly, um, and they had sex with each other, but it always worked out somehow. They, if they had babies, they're like, well, let's just do this together, you know? And, um, but then they would have sex with the people that never really got diseases that we know of. Like, there's all kind of things, and they got to do it in New York City, right? Like, they got to live it out there. I mean, you talk about no strings attached, no consequences. And as a child, unconsciously, I was like, sign me up. That's what I want right there. I want to move to New York. I want to have uninhibited sex, like no strings attached. Like I want to be able to make enough money to do whatever I need to do at any point in time. That was what I wanted. That was like sparking something in me. So every time I watch Friends, I couldn't just watch Monica and Chandler like work out life together and be married. I couldn't just laugh at Ross. I had to be like, I want to consume that and I want that and I want to get, I want to get away from my life here and now. 
Like that's, that's how far it went for me. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's crazy. The thing is, you do the same thing. You have your own things you do that with. For me, it was this, this network television show called Friends. But it kept sparking something in me. So I had to start taking some action and going, well, I guess I can't watch, you know, Ross and Joey and Chandler have fun anymore. That sucks. You know, like I had to like mourn over it. And then I want to go back and watch it. And then anybody who asked me like early on when I was trying to deal with this, like, hey, Robin, how you doing? I just watch Friends. Okay. Like, are you Okay. No, I want to run away from my life and my marriage. They're like, oh, well, then that sounds bad. Okay, so let's not watch Friends anymore. Like, that's, that's how extreme it got for me. Now, here's the thing. We all have things in our life that you're going to have to, like, cut out. You're going to have to deal with. You're going to have to have boundaries with and go, I can't keep doing that. And you keep thinking you can. You keep thinking you can watch the newest Netflix TV show every time it says TVMA. But you know what TVMA means. You're waiting for a lust hit. You're waiting for a moment that like, well, that's out of nowhere. I guess I'll stay here for a second. And it just, that's real. Uh, that's real, right? There we go. Not friends, Netflix, right? It, you're like, well, I'll just kind of hang out here at the coffee shop and keep working. No, you're not. You're like saving up lust hits to take to the spank bank for later on. Like that's what's happening. Like you're just like saving up. I told you not to have kids in here. Like you're just saving up to like somehow check out later on. So you can cut out masturbation all you want, but if you're not cutting out the other things, then you're not actually dealing with anything. You're going to have to do, like, deal with some of the compulsion. But here's the thing. If you're only just cutting off everything in life, you'll end up like, as one commentator said, a bloody stump being rolled into heaven. And that's not what Jesus is after. So you see, there's some hyperbole here to what Jesus is saying as well we have to recognize. See, two things. One... He uses this idea of Gehenna. Now, you don't see Gehenna there. It says hell. But in Greek, the word hell is Gehenna. Now, there's plenty of, like, scholarship around this. And what's he actually saying? I'm going to give you what has been more of an ancient Jewish understanding, not necessarily a Protestant evangelical understanding, okay? So, I'm going to give you this other side. But with Midrash and commentary, there was this idea, even when you look back in um, Isaiah and some in Psalms, that when bodies were disposed of, they would say they would take it to the valley of Gehenna. The valley of Gehenna was simply a valley near Jerusalem that was considered like this trash heap. You would take the waste there, the things that like weren't useful anymore. That also means you would take bodies there from time to time. Maybe bodies you didn't want to bury, bodies of people outside that attacked you or were perpetrators. So, this valley of Gehenna was filled with trash and filled with carcasses that some commentators say there was a, a smoke. The legend is that there was this, like, burning furnace that was always happening in the valley of Gehenna. And this was the imagery for a Jewish person of hell. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that if you don't deal with these things, you're going to go to hell and not be in heaven. That's not what he's saying. I want, to hear, I want you to hear me say this. You can go on the rest of your life and keep struggling through with what you're dealing with when it comes to lust and pornography, and you'll still end up with Jesus. But let me tell you something. You will be useless. You will have wasted away your humanity. And you will have tears that almost cannot just be quenched and comforted. 
Yeah, you could go on doing it. Yeah, you could go on living this way. Repent, do it, repent, do it, repent, do it, ad nauseum. But if you never really deal with it, you're just dehumanizing yourself, and you're as useful as any other piece of trash or carcass they would throw into the valley of Gehenna. And Jesus is saying, if you go on just cutting off everything in your life, but never really dealing with the heart of the matter, it's absurd. See, the right eye was the eye of power where everything came in. It was looked at that if you wanted to really dehumanize a person, it actually would happen. We see it in the Old Testament, different places, like they would just take out the right eye because that was considered like the gateway in to the brain, to the neurons. But then the hand, well, you know what the hand's for. Like Jesus saying, like, you can cut out your eyes and not look at, like, porn anymore. You cut off your hand and quit masturbating. That's really what he's saying. But you'll end up just this stump that's useless. Because he's after more than simply us just taking a few right actions. So what is he after? What is he after? I'm going to just read this to you. It's longer. So if you need to close your eyes and take it in, just the thing is, if you close your eyes with as warm as it is, you might fall asleep. But... This is from a, one writer, and they break down this whole idea of what Jesus is after, especially when it comes to the mind. Sexual arousal can be explained as the neurochemical anticipation of sexual pleasures. The brain is wired for both sexual pleasure as well as for sexual fidelity and rugged, faithful commitment. As a result of various forms of contact, whether it's sexual, skin-to-skin, the brain releases dopamines, which is the neurochemical that says, wow, this is pleasurable. So anytime that you're aroused, that's a dopamine being released in you that's saying, wow, this is great. Dopamine creates brain pathways, tunnels of sexual pleasure that tell a person to do this again and again. And those neurochemical passes make it easier to do it again. Thus, any kind of sexual contact begins to create the desire for more sexual connection with that same person. See, every time you interact sexually with lust, skin to skin, whatever it may be, anytime you even entertain in your brain the same lust time and again for another person, you set your heart upon them, you're creating like a trench, a pathway, a walkway in your brain that it becomes so natural to walk in, it does it without you even thinking about it. That's what's called addiction. That if you keep creating these pathways, you become addicted. In addition to dopamine, the brain releases oxytocin and vasopressin, which tell a woman that a man is hers and the man that the woman is his. This kind of bonding is created every time a human has any kind of sexual experience. Listen, the feeling of guilt or dirtiness that arises in a human who experiences sex outside the bounds of biblical morals or fidelity is the brain's way of saying, I'm confused. I'm confused. See, every time you set your heart on something that actually is not yours, you start stripping away dignity. Your brain isn't wired for that. It originally is wired by God to be in rugged, faithful commitments and relationships, to have fidelity. So therefore, your brain is screaming at you, I'm confused right now. 
All this is to say Jesus prohibits illicit sexual encounters, whether physical or fantasy, because God has wired us for sexual fidelity and lifelong rugged commitments of love to one another. Hearts are wired to brains, and brains are wired to commitment. Your commitment is not enough if you don't deal with your heart. If you don't get to the heart of the matter, then your commitments will always be hollow. You ever feel like that you're just like white-knuckling it to like not lust, to like not look at something, to stay away? Jesus is in heaven going, good job, you keep doing that. He's looking at you like going, this is stupid. Like, what are you doing? Like, this isn't going to last. You're going to break down underneath this. It's too much weight. Your commitment level of white-knuckling it and being holy and righteous isn't enough. So, if you want to actually deal with the matter of lusting and putting your heart on another, stripping them of their dignity and your dignity as well, you better deal with your heart. You think we've been playing around talking about matters of the heart for the last two years here. Well, I don't like that. Give me some kind of gospel fix at the end. Tell me how Jesus makes it better. He's trying to help you, but you're going to have to do some work. I don't know. Go get some therapy. I don't know, like start being honest about your life with another person and not setting them up for a codependent relationship where you're like, will you please check in with me and make sure I don't lust? That's you creating a codependent relationship. When you find yourself lusting, make a phone call, check it in, and say, I need help. This is how you deal with those kind of things. You can't sit in a cave, memorize the book of Ephesians, and then walk out thinking you'll be enlightened enough to take on the world. That's the lie that the Western church has given us, and it just hasn't worked. It's insane. We keep having the same old conversations time and again, and we're not seeing change. And listen, I'm not telling you that this is perfect path that's always going to work. It's a struggle. It's a struggle. Anyone involved in my life that actually knows me knows that I am someone who has to struggle for purity and righteousness and holiness and I have to constantly be honest with other people around me and not set it up where they're trying to keep me accountable, but where I can keep myself accountable with them. You see the difference? It's not your friend's job to keep you from lusting. It's your job to own up to what's happening in your heart, the pathways you're creating in your brain, and go, so this is insane, and I need help. See, Jesus is after fidelity. He's after faithfulness. He's after us actually lining up the 1 p.m. and the 1 a.m. us and going, I just, I don't know what to do, but I know this can't stay the same. And you go on living in these insane ways, lusting and consuming, stripping people of their dignity, and they would never know it. But here's the thing, you will find yourself useless, impotent, and as good as any carcass just to throw into the valley of Gehenna, into hell. So what does it mean then for us to live this out? Well, fidelity is difficult. It's fidelity to God, to yourself, and to others. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of commitment. It takes a lot of honesty. It's you being honest with God, saying, 
gosh, I don't know if you're big enough to help me in this. You know, the recovery world has just been nailing this for years, and the church has been so scared to get near it, they just, like, try to demonize it. There's a reason why things like uh, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, Sex Halts Anonymous, Sex Addicts Anonymous, all those kind of things are picking up a lot of steam because people are running out of options. They're running out of ways to deal with all these neuropaths that have been created in their brain. The church has given them knives to keep going into the gunfights of life. They think if they just kind of hold out for six weeks and then don't go back to it, to masturbation, then they're like killing it. But all they're doing is just creating a regular path that they know if they'll just hold out for six weeks, they get to go like masturbate and check out and do whatever they want to. Or they get to go hook up in a relationship and do whatever they want to. See, this isn't just for married people. This is for singles as well. Every time you interact in some kind of a relationship sexually outside of the bonds that God has created, you're becoming more and more useless. You're also insane because you're starting fires outside the fire pit, and you're lighting the world on fire thinking that you're bringing the light, but you're bringing destruction. I'm not telling you to be holy because God said it and you better do it. I'm telling you, like, your holiness is your only chance at being a human being. So if you actually want to interact with the world and give it hope, that means you're a human with two feet on the ground walking with Jesus, providing hope. But you can't do that when you're lighting your life and your world on fire through your lust. See, this isn't just for married folk. It's for single folk as well. So it takes the fidelity to God, and it also takes the fidelity to yourself. What do I mean? At some point in time, you get sick and tired of dehumanizing yourself. Like at some point in time, you got to get sick and tired of being sick and tired of being sick and tired of just like going, this is crap. Like I just can't keep doing this. And so many times for spouses, especially for husbands, that becomes the time when they go and confess to their wives. Wives, you know this, when husbands do this, honey, I'm sorry, I messed up again, I'm so sorry. You know what they're doing at that moment? Sorry, guys, about to burst your bubble. You know what they're doing at that moment? They're wanting you to carry their burden for them. They're wanting you to take up what they're unwilling to carry. It's also called a codependent relationship. Just kind of messing up all kind of things this morning. Your wife is not your priest to confess to. Your spouse is not the person that you unload everything on and go, please fix me. They're there to share it with you, but they're not there to fix it for you. Because the reality is, you may not need fixing as much as just like some honest, healthy admission of your limitations and that you need help. Maybe you're an addict. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to make those calls. I am going to say that if you find yourself constantly dehumanizing people around you, overreaching, tripping them down in your mind, setting your heart upon them, Jesus is saying that's a problem. And you actually can't have a culture of love and dignity and respect when that's constantly happening. We want to shy away from this and make this just like the big thing. Let's set up conferences we go to, huge accountability groups. Guys, get pure. Yeah, there's some mocking to that, because you know what? It hasn't worked. We're still doing the same things. 
So it takes some actually respect for yourself, but then it also takes respect for others around you. Wendell Berry, he's a writer. I know a lot of you probably love him. Here's what he has to say. It's in your bulletin. What marriage offers and what fidelity is meant to protect is the possibility of moments when what we have chosen and what we desire are the same. Such a convergence obviously cannot be continuous. No relationship can continue very long at its highest emotional pitch. But fidelity prepares us for the return of these moments, which give us the highest joy we can know, that of union, communion, atonement, or in the root sense, at one minute. To forsake all others does not mean, because it cannot mean, to ignore or neglect all others, to hide or be hidden from all others, or to desire or love no others. To live in marriage is a respectful way to live in sexuality, as to live in a household is a respectful way to live in the world. You know, more and more studies are coming out how that millennials, most of you, um, are choosing not to get married. Um, And the studies have shown that two of the main reasons, one is like financial. You're just kind of looking at it going, it's not really worth it financially, right? Like, it's just a big burden. Um, And so, more and more people are choosing like not to marry and maybe just to like live together, but let's not worry about those formalities. Another reason is because more and more society has adjusted to what was looked at as like horrible and wrong and evil and, you know, um, if you had a single mom with a child, people just kind of, well, you know, she, she's got, you know, she's on her own. Like, those would be the kind of things that were just talked about. Today in culture, people are, like, encouraged, like, listen, like, if you want to have a baby, find a surrogate, and then, or, like, go adopt, or whatever it may be. But in Christianity, in Judeo-Christianity, in the Old Testament for Jewish people, marriage was actually highly encouraged. It was looked at as a way to express your relationship with God and the world around you. doesn't mean that's the only way. It just means it was like a, a great way. Like there are people who are called to be single, and that's fine. But he's saying here in Scripture, like, marriage is important. It's a good thing. And yet even more and more people in the church don't want to do it. I think there's like a third reason. I think the church is just really uninspiring when it comes to marriage. I think we have really crummy marriages. That's what I think. I think when people finally get close to a marriage, people say, oh, we follow Jesus, and they get near it, and they're finding, like, there's nothing different here. There's actually a, a, a chart that they put together a year ago of showing marriages every thousand people, and you can see in the, in the 50s, after World War II, like, it spiked up. It was something like 16 out of a thousand, every thousand people get married, which is high. It was one of the highest statistics, like, in the last several hundred years. But you can now see just how low it is. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that people are uninspired. When divorce rates are 41% for the first marriage, 50%, no, 60% for the second marriage, and 70% for the third marriage, at some point in time, you got to look at that and go, that's not worth it. That's not what I want to do. Now, I don't say all of this to tell you that you need to, like, go get married. Like, just quit being single, go get married. Like, I'm not saying that. I'm not even holding up marriage to say this is better than your singleness. I'm not saying that at all. 
What I am saying is there's a narrative we keep communicating to the world around us that says, eh, don't worry about faithfulness. Don't worry about fidelity. At the end of the day, just it is what it is. So people outside of this room are saying, well, I'm setting my heart on this and I want to lust and check out. People inside this room are saying, well, I'm going to set my heart on this and lust and check out. And it's just the same. And what the Sermon on the Mount is trying to provide is something that's more inspiring that the world keeps going after time and again. So what do you do then? Well, in Matthew 7, which just a couple of chapters after this, Jesus is going to say something. He's going to go, hey, you've heard all what I had to say. And if you want this, ask and keep asking. It will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Well, those are actions you take. If you want change in your life, it's going to take action. But it's not going to be you taking on more power over your body. It actually is going to be you admitting more powerlessness over your body. That's an important, very important point. You are not powerful enough to stop lusting. But you do have the ability to ask for help, for others to be a part of this journey. You can be needy. You can reach out and say, here's who I am. Here's what I'm dealing with. How do we do this? And that's what the pastors are here to help do, the elders at Christ City, or even deacons. We're here to help. We might be the person that's going to be the one you're always talking to. We may point you to greater, like, avenues of health. But that's why from our leadership from the top down, we've invested heavily in people being healthy. Because we want to be places you can come to to find health, to find change. And not just for purity's sake to be a better Christian. But because if you don't stop doing that, you're going to keep stripping yourself down and the world around you and be useless. And if you're showing up here, you're not showing up here unless you actually want to be a useful person. So that's what I'm asking for out of you this morning. Admission of your own powerlessness. The willingness to say, like, I can't do this alone. And the reality that there is a God who is so loving and faithful Matter of fact, 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. He cannot deny who he is. So we're going to come take communion, and you're going to come forward with your unfaithfulness. And you're going to come to the presence of Jesus, who cannot deny who he is. And he's going to offer you faithfulness. He's going to offer you fidelity and say, hey, do you want more of this? Because if so, you can get it. Just ask for help. Let's pray. Father, be with us now as we go into communion. Pray that this would be a, a time for us to actually admit our weakness and need. And that you would be a big enough God to meet us here. A big enough God that says things can change. Jesus, we want to take seriously what does it mean to deal with the matters of the heart and not just simply our commitments. So we pray that this table would be big enough for us to bring all those questions and doubts and fears to. In Jesus' name, amen.